The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, February 26th. On today's show, we'll look at the continuing battle between Tesla CEO Elon Musk and the Security and Exchange Commission. Earlier this week, the SEC asked a judge to hold Musk in contempt for tweets he's made about Tesla's performance. The SEC says Musk violated a settlement he reached with the commission last year, which required him to have his tweets reviewed before sending them. Then Will is going to speak with journalist Casey Newton about an investigation he published this week on the tech site The Verge. The article is headlined The Trauma Floor, The Secret Lives of Facebook Moderators in America. Newton talked to current and former employees of a moderation facility in Arizona that contracts with Facebook about the working conditions there. And in particular, the psychological toll of scrutinizing hundreds of Facebook posts each day that feature extreme violence, hate speech, sometimes murder, and conspiracy theories. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close my tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. The delicious ice-cold taste of Dr. Pepper has a lasting effect on people. Lindsay from Sacramento said, Pro tip, 40 degrees is the perfect temperature for an ice-cold Dr. Pepper. Why is 40 degrees the perfect temperature for Dr. Pepper? We brought in Sue from Duluth, Minnesota to tell us. Oh yeah, I know a thing or two about cold. Oh, that right there is the perfect kind of ice-cold for Dr. Pepper. I'd share that with my friend Nancy. She likes Dr. Pepper, too, you know. My coldest... All right, that'll be all, Sue. Having a perfect temperature for your Dr. Pepper, it's a pepper thing. Inspired by real fan posts. The spotlight is once again on Elon Musk, who finds himself in hot water once again with the Security and Exchange Commission over his tweets this week. The SEC filed a motion on Monday to ask a judge to hold the Tesla CEO in contempt for violating a settlement from last September. Musk had agreed not to make any statements about Tesla's financial status that would move the market in any way without first getting approval from Tesla's attorneys. But on February 19th, Musk fired off a tweet to his 24 million followers that claimed that his company would make about 500,000 cars this year. But four hours later, the same day, Musk clarified that what he actually meant to say was that the rate of weekly production by the end of 2019 will amount to around 500,000 annually, and that he estimates that deliveries for the year are still going to be around 400,000. These are two very different things. But whatever he meant, the tweets prompted the SEC the next day to inquire as to whether or not they were approved before he sent them. It turns out the first tweet claiming half a million Teslas would be produced this year was not approved. Tesla legal counsel only saw the tweet after it was out, which led the attorneys to request Musk send a subsequent clarification tweet. He once again published inaccurate material information about Tesla to his over 24 million followers, the SEC wrote, including members of the press and made this inaccurate information available to anyone with Internet access. That's what the SEC put in its filing. While Tesla didn't offer comment to reporters about the SEC's call to find its CEO in contempt, Musk did tweet a meme later on Monday with a photo of his face stretched across a sunsetting sky. There was text on that meme that read like a script. It was said, teacher, what are you laughing at? Me, nothing. My brain, Elon, dusk. 
So like a sunset dusk instead of musk. Um, I'm not sure what Elon Dusk means, but it made me laugh. <laughs> I don't know if there's really much to read into this anyway. But we do know that Musk, you know, is a longtime fan of dumb jokes and memes. And that might actually be what got him into trouble in the first place back in August Musk tweeted that he had secured the funding to take the company private at $420 a share. The number 420, as many people know, is a reference to marijuana. After the tweet, the company stock rose by as much as 7.3%. But that whole ordeal led the SEC to file a suit alleging Musk had misled investors, which resulted in a settlement where the CEO kept control of Tesla, but was stripped of the title of board chairman, and he was ordered to pay a $20 million fine. Shortly after that, Musk called the SEC the Short Seller Enrichment Commission. Musk later went on 60 Minutes in December and told journalist Leslie Stahl that he hasn't been censored since the settlement. Does someone have to read them before they go out? No. So your tweets are not supervised? The, the, the only tweets that would have to be, say, um, reviewed would be if, if a tweet had a probability of uh, causing a movement in the stock. And that's it? Yeah, I mean, otherwise it's, uh, hello, First Amendment. It's pretty, like, freedom of speech is fundamental. But, but how do they know if it's going to move the market if they're not reading all of them before you send them? Well, I guess uh, we might make some mistakes. Who knows? <laughs> Are you serious? No, he's perfect. I want to I be clear. I do not respect the SEC. I do not respect them. It's not clear what it would take for Tesla to get rid of Musk or if that's even the answer. His cult following clearly is part of what drives the popularity of the brand, but he's also a loose cannon who hasn't really shown the best leadership. There's so much more to say about Musk, but I'm going to stop there. Next, we have Will's interview with journalist Casey Newton about his story on the lives of Facebook content moderators. Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor for The Verge. His bio says he focuses on Silicon Valley news, reporting on the people and products shaping the future of technology and culture. If you follow his work avidly, as I do, you know that he's been really focused on Facebook for the past year or two. His daily newsletter, The Interface, has become a must-read for people closely following the social network's various scandals and travails. He also has a podcast called Converge with Casey Newton. Wait, is it really called Converge with Casey Newton? It sounds like you're inviting people it, to converge with it me. It is. Well, I do invite people to converge <laughs> with me, but the Converge is like honestly probably not coming back in that form. So you don't have to plug Converge, oh, but I didn't make right. it. People can listen to it. All right, yeah. nobody listen to Converge. Everybody just keep yeah. listening to If Then. 
Um, but you can good. you can definitely subscribe for, to his newsletter, The Interface. It's really good. Um, he's here in our Brooklyn studio. We're glad to have him. Casey, uh, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Will. So let's talk about the story you wrote for The Verge this week. It's called The Secret Lives of Content Moderators in America. And I want to start with just a really quick backstory. So four years ago, the journalist Adrian Chen wrote a feature for Wired, and the headline was, The Laborers Who Keep Dick Picks and Beheadings Out of Your Facebook Feed. Chen went out to this facility in Manila, Philippines, and a contractor called Task US. He described these long, dark hallways filled with rows of PCs, paperwork overflowing, ominous-looking security guards, and he really sort of introduced the, the broader public to this shadowy world of contracted content moderation jobs. We've read and learned more about that world in the intervening time, but Casey, you wrote a, a story that's set in a very different context. You went down to Phoenix, Arizona. Can you tell me about the scene there at, at the, the facility that you visited? Yeah. So in the year since Adrian wrote that great piece, um, one of the lessons Facebook in particular has taken from it is that content moderation sites should not be dark and dingy. Uh, they should photograph well. So uh, the day before I arrived, uh, my sources told me Facebook hung up a bunch of new motivational posters on the wall. <laughs> and when I got inside the facility, it was very brightly lit, uh, many candy colored posters. There was a wall chart that described the social activities at the facility. Um, it's kind of like a cross between a summer camp and a senior center. Uh, everything from yoga to crazy hair day. And on Wednesdays, we wear pink, which is a reference to the movie Mean Girls. So oh uh, a very different vibe there than uh, I might have expected going in. And some of this was just for your benefit, right? Or at least you presume because it had just been put up in anticipation of your reporting visit to the facility. I mean, I'm sure those posters are not for anyone's benefit, <laughs> including the people who work there. Like, there is something so dystopian to me about a sign on the wall that says empathy at scale. I don't even know what that means, but that poster is there at that facility. Uh, you know, there's also a bunch of posters that say, what would you do if you weren't afraid, which is this uh, phrase that was made famous by Sheryl Sandberg, uh, but that took on sort of a very new light uh, in my mind after the reporting I had done about employees fearing for their safety at work. Yeah. So, all right. So you, you visit this much nicer looking facility. It's in the United States. Um, it has happy looking, if slightly dystopian posters on the wall. Um, they give the employees, you reported, nine minutes per day of wellness time, which they are not allowed to use for bathroom breaks or for uh, prayer if they're Muslim. What did you find there? And, and what was sort of the, the the most disturbing thing about this this seemingly... Um, modern workplace. Well, the most disturbing stuff I heard was not at the site. And in fact, the reason I had been invited to the site in the first place was because I had spent the past three months talking to contractors who really bravely violated the non-disclosure agreements that they had signed to talk about their working conditions. And what they described to me was this workplace that was teetering on the brink of chaos. Uh, employees who were under insanely high pressure to never make a mistake could be fired for just making a handful, who were coping with the stresses of the job by getting high on their break, by having sex uh, in the office, um, and were actually coming to believe the conspiracy theories that they were supposed to be moderating. And they were doing it all in an environment where they had to click a Chrome extension every time they wanted to use the bathroom, and where some people were so afraid of 
of their coworkers that one of the guys I talked to started bringing a gun to work. So, you know, it was just an environment that uh, to me seems almost unimaginable to work in day in and day out. And the reason I got invited to the site was so that Facebook could show me uh, a different picture and introduce me to some contractors who were having a better experience. Right. Okay. And the job, of course, is to, is to as you report, is to look through all the nastiest, most ghastly stuff that people are uploading to Facebook around the world all the time. And they have to review hundreds of posts a day, right? And, and they have to say whether this um, beheading runs afoul of Facebook's policies or not. And they have to make these calls very quickly, which means that they don't have much time to actually process the carnage uh, that they're seeing. That's right. And, you know, while Facebook will tell you that these folks do not have quotas, it's also true that Facebook measures their productivity. It measures what they call their average handle time, right? How long do you spend with each post? It's supposed to be, you know, under 30 seconds for most types of content, uh, unless maybe it's a, a longer video that requires some some further analysis. And yeah, they're expected to do that uh, 300 times a day, maybe 400 times a day. If you fall under 200, you're definitely going to get uh, a talking to from your manager. Right. And it sounded like there were clearly some things wrong with the specifics of this workplace. The pay was $15 an hour, which is above minimum wage. It's not great pay, um, but it's not a, you know, it's not a sweatshop. But is there is there a way to make this kind of work humane? I mean, is can you imagine having visited this facility, which clearly is is an improvement over the scene described in Manila uh, by Adrian four years ago? Is there a way to make this work livable and, and and make it not be traumatic for the people who are doing it, do you think? I think anyone who does this work is going to suffer in some way, but I think there are two things that Facebook and other tech platforms could do at these call center operations that they've set up. And we should say that Facebook did not invent this model. And in fact, it was pioneered by tech companies before them. It is used by companies including Twitter and Google and therefore YouTube, right? But number one, they could and they should pay these people more. Uh, When you think about other people who are in first responder roles, uh, whether it be a police officer or a firefighter or a social worker, those are people who are typically paid at least 50% and probably more like 100% more. And there is no reason that Facebook couldn't afford to uh, pay these folks 60K a year, uh, given that it's making $6 billion in profits a quarter. So, you know, once you have 60K a year, you can afford better support. You can probably afford better therapy. uh, You can afford longer and nicer vacations, right? And so it just enables you to have a higher quality of life that is probably going to help you manage, uh, you know, that daily onslaught of really um, problematic content that that you have to look at. The the second thing that these companies could and should do is to just ease up on these inhumane restrictions that, in many cases, are preventing people from comfortably going to the bathroom, uh, from being able to clear their head, from taking a day off of work because they're having a medical issue. I mean, just in the hours since I published my story, I've heard from so many more workers at these companies who had to beg for the slightest accommodation for something going wrong in their life. And the message they got back was, you are a cog in a machine. You either show up and you do the job or you will be replaced. And, you know, when you when you listen to what Facebook says about these companies and why it uses um, these outsourcing firms to do the work, what they'll tell you is, well, they have a core competency in this kind of hiring. And 
I have to tell you, that phrase has taken on a really dark cast in my mind because the core competency is coming up with bodies that can be easily replaced. Like, so let's be clear about that. Um, If these folks were given more accommodations and were treated more like the folks who work at Facebook proper, um, I think that would greatly reduce the impact of these mental health challenges that most folks who uh, do this job are going to walk away with. Yeah, that's a great point. And I was going to ask you, what do you think is the real reason that the that Facebook contracts these jobs out rather than making them Facebook employees, if not that the, that these contractors somehow have a, a core competency? I mean, it's a couple things. You know, one is this is the way it's done is kind of the message that I kept getting from Facebook. Uh, look at other companies. We didn't invent this model. Um, two, obviously, it's radically cheaper. The median Facebook employee makes $240,000 a year in salary, bonuses, and stock. And the entry-level Cognizant employee is going to make 28800 So huge cost savings to Facebook for doing it. But, you know, I think there's a third thing at play here, and that is that Facebook wants to believe believe that in time, this work will all be done by machines, right? That what some of what these folks are actively doing is training a data set so that an AI will be able to sort through our posts and identify bad content and just remove it from the platform without anyone having to look at it. And I certainly think that that is a good goal. And there are probably some horrible videos that we'll just be able to identify and remove. Um, You know, many moderators told me that uh, the same, you know, handful of bad videos get uploaded over and over again. Why is that? That does not seem like that seems like a problem we've already solved. Uh, but, you know, it's still something that they that they have to look at. But like the problem is that once you decide that people are doing work that a machine will someday do, you've already stopped seeing them as human beings, right? You're you're stripping away their their humanity and you are refashioning them into cogs in a machine. And that becomes a license to treat them however badly that you can get away with. So I think if if Facebook Facebook and these other tech companies, they want to fix this problem. They have to start seeing these people as human beings again, and they have to start asking themselves whether they could labor for even one day under the conditions that they are asking their own contractors to. It does seem like the job that they're being asked to do is already sort of algorithmic, right? Like they they have to make sort of machine-like calls. You mentioned in the piece that someone posting to Facebook, autistic people should be sterilized is allowable under Facebook's sort of labyrinthine rulebook, mm-hmm. but men should be sterilized is not allowable because gender is like Facebook's version of a protected class and being autistic is not does not get that same kind of scrutiny. I'm using I'm probably borrowing words here from from US law, but of course this is all stuff that Facebook has just patched together over the yeah. years. Um, there was a great Radio Lab segment a while back about about how this rule book came into being and why it seems to make no sense uh, <laughs> most of the time. And you also reported that there's a lot of confusion sometimes on the floor. They call it the production floor, right? In this Phoenix facility mm-hmm where everybody thinks that a rule should be interpreted one way and then the word comes from on high, oh, we've been doing it all wrong. Actually, the rule's supposed to be this other way. Right, and then three hours later, it gets reversed again, right? I mean, like this is a story that you will hear from any moderator that you talk to at these facilities. And it is uh, such a frustrating thing because, of course, 
uh, accuracy, um, as Facebook defines it, is the core metric that all of these folks are graded against. So think about it. You make a wrong call, you get dinged, you think, oh crap, I've made one of my three mistakes that I'm allowed to today. And then somebody switches it back and you think, okay, phew, I can breathe again. And then three hours later, it gets switched back, right? Like, like, like these are people's livelihoods that are at stake. And in many, many cases, Facebook is being extremely flip about the way that it is making and then unmaking and then remaking these decisions. What would, I mean, in Facebook's ideal world, they wouldn't even be having to do this, right? For a long time, they resisted the idea that they should be responsible for everything that people post on Facebook. But it was actually a lot of pressure from from the media and the public, and I assume users, um, that when you see something awful in your feed or you see something that that's hate speech that, that somebody else is posting, that that should be Facebook's responsibility. I don't know. It, can you see the way to a world in which um, this is done well? I mean, you mentioned automating the job and letting AI do it. The problem there is, as we know from covering Facebook, anytime you you delegate a complex task of human judgment to AI, like ranking the newsfeed, it's going to be gamed. And there are going to be people right. who, who find the vulnerabilities in the AI and figure out ways to get the, the, the beheadings and the dick pics and the, the sexual assaults past the, the automated sensors. Is the problem just that like a platform this big can't, can't be effectively moderate? I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of in, inarticulate here. Like, it's, it's hard to see a better world, um, given that something like Facebook exists and is so large. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, once again, we have an effect of size and uh, the platform grew too big for its creators to control. And so sort of here is another unintended consequence of Frankenstein's monster. So yeah, it, it is a size problem. And so when I think about solutions, I think about what happens in smaller communities. And if you want a hopeful example, I would actually point to Reddit. And I know that, you know, three, four years ago, we were talking about Reddit as a failed state, and it seemed like it was sort of the end times over there. Yeah, they were the they were think, the what not to do example. Yeah, and yet, you know, I um, I, can, I'm going to confess something extremely nerdy to you, uh, Will. This is a world exclusive here on your podcast. Um, but I'm a pro wrestling fan, and the absolute best pro wrestling community is on Reddit. It's on Squared Circle, and that community has very specific uh, rules about what you can and can't post, and they would make no sense to anyone who is not a wrestling <laughs> fan. But I'll give you a quick example. Um, you know, people bring signs to wrestling shows. And so sometimes people will take screenshots and then upload a photo of a funny sign. That community said, this is a low effort post. We do not we do not do low effort posts around here. Ban it. Um, and their moderators are extremely active. And I've tried to post a couple things. I've never managed to successfully get something onto uh, this forum. You know, me, as you know, paid content creator, can't manage to figure out Reddit. But the flip side of it is, is that the content that does make it up is so good, right? So how does Reddit do this? Well, they basically set a floor where it's like, you have to at least do this, right? Like no Reddit can post uh, child porn, let's say, right? But then other Reddits can raise the ceiling and they can say, hey, you know what? Uh, You have to follow all of those rules, but then you also have to follow these rules. And so whichever Reddit community you dip into is going to have a slightly different approach to what kinds of content that you can see. So, you know, I can imagine a version of Facebook where, you know, maybe it doesn't all subdivide into, you know, millions and millions of communities, but maybe users can start to um, have more granular control over what they want to see in their feed. Maybe they can raise the ceiling and say, you know what, I never want to see any mention of uh, like nudity whatsoever, right? Or 
where I never want to see a single curse word. And then it stops becoming this essential question of freedom of speech versus security. And it becomes more about what does the user want, which if you listen to these companies is supposed to be, you know, what they're doing anyway. Right. Yeah, I like that idea. And and it is hard to escape the conclusion that I, I guess I was sort of dancing around earlier that the problem is Facebook's sheer size. Um, and, and Reddit's example of a more sort of federal system, if you will, where there are, there are smaller sub-communities. Facebook does seem to be moving that way in, in some regards. I mean, more people are, are using Facebook groups now um, rather than just being in their, in their main news feed. But short of breaking up Facebook, uh, I like your idea of, of personalizing it a little bit more. Also, I'm very glad you revealed on the show that you're a, a professional wrestling fan. Have you ever professionally wrestled yourself? Um, I, well, I'm six foot five. So, you know, if I were remotely athletic, I think I could have made a lot of money for Vince McMahon. But, uh, you know, life being what it is, I am a, a humble journalist. All right, Casey, but a good one at that. And, and thanks for your reporting. And thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Will. All right, one last break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we saw on the web this week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So my tab this week is from the San Jose Mercury News. It actually came out on Tuesday, the day we're recording this. It's titled Facebook, Google Bikes Lead to Tensions with Neighbors. And uh, it goes through this kind of troubling example of uh, this this woman who is a East Palo Alto Planning Commission member, Kyra Brown, says she was driving through Menlo Park, which is where Facebook is located, And she spotted four police cars, a fire truck and an ambulance surrounding a young black man in handcuffs on the ground nearby. One of the baby blue bikes Facebook provides for free to its employees was laying on the ground. Apparently, the officers had stopped the man, uh, the young man who was released to ask if he was a Facebook employee. Um, And apparently non-employees who are riding the bikes can be charged with, you know, taking lost or stolen property or even bike theft. But this I guess, guy, 
I guess, became uncooperative after getting pulled over by the police, and which led them to put him in handcuffs. And as Brown said to the Mercury, this is a hardcore example of tech companies leading to gentrification, which is then leading to over-policing. It's a really interesting story because if you are in this area at all or, or if you're around a tech company campus, you might be familiar with these free bikes. Google has them. They're green. Facebook has them. They're baby blue. And the employees just leave them strewn about the sidewalk in front of corner stores. And of course, if you're a kid, you're going to pick one up and ride one. Or if you're just a person who needs a bike or a ride, I mean, they're just lying around free. You know, it's kind of giving officers another reason to pull people over who look suspect, probably people who look like they don't work at Facebook. And since Facebook has such abysmal diversity numbers, that's probably black and brown people in the neighborhood and to ask if they're stealing the bikes. Um, and these are free bikes that are lying around, but they're only for some people to use. Those are the people who, who work at the companies. And it, it's just leading to tensions in the neighborhood. I always like to pull out these stories because I'm in the Bay Area of how these companies not only you know, affect globally our, our political situation, nationally our political situation, but also the places where they decide to set up shop. Okay, I'm going to throw it over to Will now, who also has something he wanted to make sure we all read or at least took a look at and were aware of this week. All right, my tab this week is from Vox, and the headline is How a Coat on Amazon Took Over a Neighborhood and Then the Internet. So the author noticed just this flood of headlines about some jacket that was on Amazon. There's an AOL headline, People are going absolutely wild over this jacket on Amazon. Yahoo says, The Amazon coat is taking the internet by storm. Glamour says, everyone you know is buying this Amazon coat. So the author digs into it. What is this Amazon coat? Well, it's, it's a pretty random, nondescript, $140 women's down jacket. It's now listed as the best seller when you search for down jackets on Amazon. So that probably goes some way toward explaining why so many people are buying it and talking about it. But the author actually finds that it started with one little blog post on New York Magazine's strategist blog, which is a buying guide. There was an editor at New York Mag who said, you know, I've noticed that some fashionable ladies in my neighborhood on the Upper East Side in Manhattan are wearing this kind of random jacket. Why don't you figure out what that jacket is and why people are wearing it? So the author tracks it down and writes a little piece about it. And then it starts getting picked up by other media outlets because just the idea of a random Amazon jacket going viral makes for good headlines. But not only that, what the author of this piece finds is that there's this economy of Amazon links on the internet. So if you are the type of blog or website that reviews products or endorses products for people to buy, you can get a kickback from Amazon for everybody who buys one. So there's this extra incentive for media outlets to cover this supposedly viral Amazon jacket because every time somebody buys one from their site, they get money. And so the virality of this jacket actually was manufactured basically by uh, fashion blogs. It wasn't viral until they started reporting that it was viral. And then uh, it shot up to the top of Amazon's rankings. And then people really did start buying it. And now it's absolutely everywhere and inescapable. And of course, the, the twist ending is that the women on the Upper East Side who are so fashionable who had bought it in the first place, they've decided it's totally over and they've moved on to other coats. So I guess you're out of luck if you're trying to be on trend with Amazon's Orale women's down jacket. All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hello. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser. 
And Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Casey Newton. You can find him on Twitter at Casey Newton. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. It's very cool of you to do so, especially if it's a nice review. If then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is the wonderful Max Jacobs. And thanks so much to Danielle Hewitt here in Slate, D.C., where I'm recording this week for Engineering Today. I also want to thank Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware, who is recording Will. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>